Well, hey, uh, Merry Christmas. Uh, so good to have you all here. My name is Stephen Coppenrath. I'm the pastor here, and it's uh, just a joy to be with you here this morning. Uh, welcome kids and families, uh, adults. Uh, kids, thanks for being here. Uh, parents, thanks for making this work as well. Hopefully, uh, this is a, a great experience for you, just an opportunity for us to just model uh, sitting and listening and open God's Word uh, together. And so, uh, by the way, this is a, since it's a family service, there'll be some, maybe with some more noise and shuffling around. That's totally fine. Um, parents, kids, glad that you're here with us this morning. Um, hey, let me just start us off with a question uh, this morning. When was the last time, uh, as you recall, when was the last time uh, that you received on, on your end a tangible act of love? When was the last time in your life that you received a tangible act of love? Think about that for a second. Uh, maybe it was someone in your, your home who served you in a specific way. Maybe it was somebody who preferred your needs and wants uh, above their own. Maybe it was something like that. Um, to state the obvious, I think Christmas is certainly a time where uh, we express and receive love in many ways. Right? That's kind of the, the name of the season in, in many ways, all kinds of ways that happens. I think for me, as I was thinking about this, um, I think for me, food may be my greatest love language. Um, no, I'm not, I'm not joking around. I'm serious. It's, it's an important thing for me. Uh, if you go to our church, you'll hear me talk about it often. Actually, a couple weeks back, we were talking about what's your most important Christmas tradition? What's the thing that you think about often? And some people, it's songs and, and carols. Other people, it's you know, getting Christmas jammies or whatever. For me, they were all food-related, all of them. So I, I think about, for, for me in my life, the way that I receive Christmas love uh, the most consistently is this breakfast casserole that my mom has made for the last 30 years. It's pretty basic, honestly. It's pretty like just a kind of plain casserole, but for some reason, it kind of, it, it, it really encapsulates love for me every Christmas. It's something, and receiving that, something special about that. And so that, that kind of brings us to the, our, our big idea this morning. Here's what I want us to walk away with uh, this morning as we look at 1 Corinthians 13. Here's what I want you to walk away with. God sets the perfect example of love to us through his son, Jesus, on Christmas. That's what I, I, I hope that you will accept and receive this, this weekend as you hear this. God set the perfect example of love through his son, Jesus, on Christmas. When I think about uh, 1 Corinthians 13, I think it's amazing because we see that how love is described. And I, I, we started this series last week, actually, and we talked about how this, this passage oftentimes is, is kind of fleshed out for weddings or sometimes speeches. It'll kind of make its way in there. But if you look at this chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, Jesus himself displays and kind of gives the example of perfect love in each one of these descriptions. It's really amazing. In fact, as you read through the section, especially verses 4 through 7, you could actually substitute the word Jesus every time you see the word love throughout this passage. So this week, we are going to start into a list. We're going to look at verses 4 and 5. By the way, any of you list makers? Any, any organized folks here, list makers? Uh, any of you kids make a Christmas list, by the way? Let's see your kids' hands. Christmas list? Okay. A few of you guys did. Uh, man, I love lists. Many of us employ lists all the time for work, for home stuff. My wife and I have an ongoing Costco list that just kind of changes and, and morphs right over time. And whenever you come across running lists in Scripture, I just want to encourage us that we would walk slowly and think carefully as we encounter a list. It may appear to be helpful. Uh, everything is kind of listed there in black and white. It's linear. It's clear. But here's the thing. As we read this list in verses 4 through 5, I don't want this to feel like a heavy burden to you. 
Okay, like this is all the things you're not doing. These are all the things you're supposed to be doing and you're not. And so don't receive this as a to-do list because here's the bottom line. This list uh, in 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 7, it was never meant to be a list of things that we are to accomplish on our own strength. Okay, that's, that's important for us to understand. It's utterly impossible for that to happen. It's not an aspirational list for us. It's not like, a yeah, one day, if I'm good enough or mature enough or if I grow my faith enough, I will do all these things in verses 4 and 5. That's not the truth. So don't think that. No, this is a list that points to somebody who is greater than us. Uh, we see that Jesus personifies this list perfectly. So let's look at the ways that Christ exemplifies love for us this Christmas and as he calls us to follow his example. So uh, last week we talked about verses 1 through 3. And let me just read for us verses 4, th- four through 5. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. Really short this morning, but simply we're going to walk through these words and talk about how Jesus personifies these things for us this morning. So the first point is this, love is patient. Love is patient. We see this in verse 4. As I think about the Christmas season, there are plenty of opportunities for us to, to practice being patient, right? I mean, maybe some of you, even on the way here, maybe even this morning as you're sitting here, you are practicing patience, right? So there's traffic, there's crowds, there's Amazon packages that are arriving late and you're frustrated because you're, we're used to this kind of machine working a certain way, right? There's uh, forgetting batteries for toys, there's interacting with family that we'll do the next couple days. All of these things require patience and there are many opportunities for us to test our patience. And so Paul describes uh, a very important description, first of all, what, what love is. It's patient. Love is patient. It's this kind of description that the early church would equate to this idea of bearing with one another, that we would bear with one another. The whole of Scripture shares the importance of that trait. In fact, the last third of Genesis, if you uh, know your Bible, that first book of the Bible, Genesis, the last third, Moses writes about how Joseph his life kind of personifies patience in many ways, right? Laying out the story of how God developed this man, Joseph, and his patience and how he had to wait for years and years and years for these promises to come to fruition. So what is the secret to being patient? Well, I don't think patience comes naturally for any of us, right? I think there's, there's a weakness to all of us in this room and test our patience, whether it's discovered or not. And it's amazing to me that some of, uh, some of you have gone through really hard things, uh, maybe even this last few months. It's tested your patience. You've seen that uh, you can be patient, and yet there's a small thing that happens. Maybe it's your kids. Maybe it's something at work that you just fly off the handle, and you, you can no longer be patient, right? It's amazing how that works. And I, I think the possibility of patience within our own hearts, it starts with the realization that God has a plan. That God is sovereign over our lives. And we can be patient with difficult people because they are people who are made in God's image. Patience is taking the long-term view. This is shown through the story of Jesus himself. I want us to remember how Christmas did not just happen, you know, the ne- kind of right away. It was something that had to be waited upon for a long time. Galatians 4.4 says, When the fullness of time had come, Jesus appeared. Meaning that there were years and generations of people who kind of came through 
the process, and then he came. And we think about Jesus becoming uh, made flesh, we see infinite patience on display. And even in his own life, we talked about this uh, in our series in Mark, his life and ministry is steeped in patience throughout the entire Gospels. Jesus experiences opposition from the religious elite. He experiences rejection from his own family. He's dealing with disciples who are constantly not believing or needing correction or care. Jesus is betrayed. He's handed down an unjust sentence, and he suffers a humiliating death. And so, look, if you want to see what patience looks like in all its fullness, all you have to do is read one of the gospel accounts and see how Jesus endures patiently. The second thing we see in verse 4 is this, love is kind. Love is kind. Kindness is actually an interesting word. It's a word that my, I find my wife and I will use often in terms of our, our kids and just kind of, hey, remember to be kind. Remember, remember to be kind to one another. It's a word sometimes, though, it's hard to nail down and define. Um, well, we'll give it a try because kindness isn't really spectacular, right? It's, it's not a very showy thing to be kind. It's more of an attitude. It's a, it's a humble, gentle attitude that we treat other people better than they deserve. If you read Augustine and his Confessions, which is his autobiography, it's interesting to see that God used kindness to draw Augustine to himself. And uh, Augustine was one of the top intellectuals of his day, and it wasn't an intellectual argument that drew him to the Savior. It wasn't some flashy or eloquent presentation. Instead, Augustine says himself that he came to know God through the simple kindness of his mentor, the Bishop Ambrose. And that's how Augustine saw God. Paul points to kindness even in Jesus' presence here in Titus 3.4. Titus 3.4 says, the goodness and loving kindness of God appeared. It appeared through Jesus Christ. Jesus was kind to the poor. He uh, he was kind to the needy. He was kind to the rich and entitled. He was kind to those who were socially overlooked, the children and women in society. He was kind to tax collectors and overzealous disciples. And so I want you to think about this for a second. Actually, Katie mentioned it already, but think about how in your life, in my life, how Christ has been abundantly kind to you, how he personifies this kindness that is equated with love over and over again in our life. And listen, don't allow that kindness of God to terminate on itself, but realize that that kindness ought to lead us to worship. That's the action step of kindness. It's meant for those of us who love God uh, to, to be brought into worship, and for those of us who are far from God to be brought into repentance. It's a kindness that led him to die for us while we were still sinners. Number three, love is not envious. Love is not envious. We now begin with a small portion that runs with what love is not. And number three is love does not envy. And I think there's kind of a bit of a simple gut check when it comes to um, envy, and that reveals the state of our heart here. Uh, what, is, what is your reaction to another person's success or accomplishment? What is your honest reaction when that happens? How do you feel when that promotion passes you by and it gets applied to a friend of yours? Uh, what happens when somebody makes the basketball team and, and you don't? What happens when somebody receives a gift and, and you don't? Oh, jealousy is a destructive emotion. And unfortunately, this is at the heart of the people of Corinth as well. 
And as many times as they heard it, as many times as we ourselves read it, many people cannot grasp that the unseen parts of the church body are just as important as the seen parts. And, and listen, uh, maybe you're here this morning and you would say, hey, my giftings, my abilities, what I bring to the table is, is more of an unseen thing. And to you, I would say and remind you, love is not envious. Love is not envious. Listen, this will always be a problem, envy, jealousy, because people will always have uh, more than others. People will always be blessed more than other people. And so whatever you ascribe to, maybe it's how you look or maybe how you perform, uh, there will always be another level, which means that if we want to get rid of envy in our heart, it's not about self-improvement. It's about a mindset change. It's about a deeper understanding of, of where we uh, lie in God's kingdom. I want to suggest that our envy, our jealousy, stems from a lack of gratitude. And yes, we must remember to count our obvious blessings, uh, the clothes we wear, the home we live in, the food we, we take for granted. But I think true gratitude is a realization that I don't deserve any of it. So from the simplest material things to the amazing spiritual truth that God offers his son, Jesus. And then the, the right way to fight envy in our hearts is a proper view of who we are and how God has given us more than we deserve. Number four, love is not boastful or arrogance. I'm combining two here, and I think they overlap a bit. Love is not boastful or arrogant. And uh, here's the thing. We all knew that kid growing up, right? We know all know that person in the office who, who, who maybe needs to hear this. Some of you were that kid, right? Uh, this, in many ways, is the flip side of the coin, envy. This speaks to the one who is successful. This speaks to the one who is gifted. And yet, when love is not boastful or arrogant, just because you are good at something doesn't mean you seek promotion. doesn't mean you seek the limelight or the, uh, the platform to parade your accomplishments. And again, that's what Paul is encouraging here. The person who is filled with the love of Jesus no matter how successful, no matter how bright or gifted they are, they are incredibly modest about it. They play it down. And this isn't false modesty. Uh, man, I'm, I'm sometimes good at false modesty. Maybe you are too, right? False modesty means that we have ulterior motives. False modesty puts ourselves down, maybe a little too much, so that way people will put us back up. The people of Corinth who Paul is talking to were spiritual show-offs. They were boasting in their gifts. They were boasting in their talents and accomplishments. And Paul has to write them later in chapters uh, later to remind them the principle uh, that's made clear in 4 verse 7. Who may, uh, for who makes you different from anyone else, he asked. What do you have that you do not receive? And many, many of us maybe need to be reminded of that this morning. All the things that we enjoy, all the things that we take pride in, how did we come across those things anyway to start with? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? Church, how easy it is for some of us to enjoy being the center of attention. Well, Paul reminds us, as we think about love, as we think about the, the example of Christ, is that true love is not constantly anxious to impress people. How, how does that apply to us, maybe even as we approach our curated Christmas uh, table this, this evening and, and tomorrow? Only you know the answer to that, right, by the way. Maybe it's the Christmas card you, you sent out, or, or, or maybe it's the, the food you're making in the next 24 hours. Hey, finish the, the, the plan, right? Go ahead and go, with the, go through with, with your plan. But listen, how much of that is motivated by our desire to impress other people? 
Are you chasing the admiration of others more than you are resting in Christ? Love does not boast. Love is secure in the work of Christ on our behalf. Um, an example of this, a name that you may or may not know, is uh, William Carey. William Carey was a, a missionary, um, and he's kind of the father of modern missions. He goes off to India. He starts many churches. He, he starts this kind of missions movement in many ways. And before he did any of that, his father employed him as a, a, an assistant, as a helper in his cobbler shop. So his father made shoes. It was kind of a, an important job, but it was a very simple, modest job. And so Kerry goes on to do all these amazing things. He translates scripture into 34 Indian dialects while he was in India. He was uniquely gifted. He was powerfully used, but he was oftentimes despised by people um, in social circles. One time there was a snobby guy at a dinner party who wanted to put Kerry down, and he said in a very loud voice, so I hear, Mr. Kerry, you are a shoemaker. Kind of loud just to put him down in front of a bunch of people. And William Carey corrects him, and he says, no, actually, I'm a shoe mender, not a shoemaker. And this guy tries to cut him down, but Carey puts himself even lower. And church, listen, in a world that lifts up influencers and self-promotion, it's hard to not play along. It really is. Pride and arrogance has a big head, and love has a big heart. Love is concerned to give itself, not assert itself. Number five. Love is not rude. We see this in verse 5. Love is not rude. In other words, love has good manners. Love has good manners. Love is polite. Um, I think it's important on this specific one, we remember the motivation of the heart because being polite, uh, as opposed to being rude, can sometimes feel a little trite. It sometimes feels a little bit like we're just saying the right words in the right order. And so even uh, regionally, we can fall into some cultural traps. Some of you guys are maybe not from California. Maybe you're from the East Coast or the South or Texas or, or whatever across. Uh, maybe you're from a different country. And I know that if you visited or if you're from the South, for example, like Georgia, the Carolinas, you will rarely come off as rude, right? People are just kind of polite. There's this kind of easygoingness about that, that especially for us West Coasters, it's like, wow, those people are really nice, right? Um, listen, maybe that doesn't tell the whole story. I think about folks who work in the service industry during Christmas, even, the people that we interact with oftentimes. Maybe it's retail or maybe it's food. How often, as Christians, do we go out of our way to speak politely to people? This is kind of common stuff, right? This is what, what grandma taught us, right, when we were younger kind of thing. Uh, well, you may think, Stephen, we're here on Christmas Eve service, like, we're talking about scripture. We're talking about the gospel. What's the end game here? What does that have to do with showing the love of Christ? Well, I, I think that Paul's exhortation to, to be, to be to, that love is not rude is important for two reasons. Number one, I think there are gospel opportunities when we are not rude. And secondly, I think there's a further development of our view of Yamago Dei. Okay? So when we are polite... And when we choose good, kind words instead of short, harsh reactions, we keep the door open for conversation and relationship. And what a, what a gift and opportunity, because I think that relationship is the number one thing that can bring about gospel conversations. And secondly, when we are polite and not rude, we exercise our view, our belief, that all people are made in God's image. And if if that's not good for anyone, it's just good for our own hearts to remember that. 
And so this seemingly innocuous trait, love is not rude, is the door that Jesus himself walked through in order to engage his mission of rescuing us from our sin. He doesn't show us disrespect. He's not condescending. He doesn't dismiss us as unimportant. Instead, he lays his life down for us. Love is not rude. Number six, we see in verse five that love is not self-seeking. Love is not self-seeking. Love does not insist on its own way. This is a highly countercultural idea for us. We are absolutely obsessed with ourselves nowadays, right? Uh, it's, it's very true. And however we want to self-identify, however we want to have preference, has become kind of absolutely paramount in our culture. Um, uh, many years ago, there was a, an Adam Sandler movie that uh, he plays this guy who is a son. He doesn't realize he has a son. And he, he comes about this kid who's eight years old. And he's trying to make up for lost time. And he's totally clueless as a dad. And so he lets his son dress himself in whatever he wants to wear. Uh, he lets him eat whatever he wants to eat. He lets him kind of call himself whatever he wants to call himself. And it's, it's pretty funny, but the consequences are pretty bad. Right? So he lets his son eat ketchup for a meal. He, his son wants to be called Frankenstein. And so he, he goes ahead and, that's fine, call, call yourself Frankenstein. Look, perfect love is, is not self-seeking. It doesn't put my uh, desires, my preference, how I identify as the most important thing on the table. It sets aside our plans, our preferences, and it submits to God's plan and his preferences. This, in many ways, is the subtext of Christmas. God made us as humans in his image to reflect his glory, we fall short of that glory, and so that is why Jesus is sent. He was sent out of love to restore that image. And this is why so much of the Christian life, so much of how we live out our faith is about self-denial. True love, then, the love that came down for us, is always unselfish. It's hard to say, it's, and it's easy to say, but it's hard to practice. Just a few more. We got, we got eight, eight, eight points, by the way, so two more points. Um, verse 5 says, love is not irritable. Next, we see that love is not irritable, which simply means that we're not easily angered. Uh, does this describe you this morning? Are you quick to irritability? Do you default to annoyance? Are you easily provoked? The truth is, for all of us, some people rub us the wrong way. Don't like look at people right now or put fingers or anything. It's awkward. You have to see some of these people tomorrow, right? Um, sometimes they do it knowingly, but most of the time, probably not on purpose. And my tendency is to blame and think outwardly in, in these times. The problem lies with them. They are annoying. Like objectively, they're annoying, right? I don't mean to be pointing this side of the room, by the way, but um, it, rem it reminds me of that quote. I'm not sure exactly who said it, but it's like, like wherever, you go, wherever you go, there you are, right? And so is it the problem actually outward or is the problem inward? And I, I think when it comes to being irritable, the, the, the problem likely isn't my boss or my coworker or my siblings. Or, uh, the fact is, is if you were to kind of wholesale reset your life and have all new people in your life, uh, a brand new job, uh, a brand new boss, a brand new spouse and family and friends, all new people. The truth is, is you and I would still just be as irritable as, as we are now. We would be. Because, because it's, it's us. It's in our sinful hearts. It's something that we have to ask the Lord to change in us, to sanctify out of us. 
And so instead of loving people despite their faults, we focus on the annoyance of the people around us. This is in direct contrast to Jesus. 1 Peter 2.23 says this, when they hurled their insults at Jesus, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Who is the him revert to in the end of verse 23? It's, it's God the Father. So Jesus entrusts himself to God's plan. He has every reason from a human perspective to respond, especially at the end of his life when he's suffering, when he's being treated uh, wrongly, uh, to respond in fiery outbursts. And he chooses not to because he puts his trust in the Lord. Love is not easily angered. We end here this morning at the end of verse 5. Love is not resentful. Love is not resentful. I feel like in many ways, this is the right place for us to end here at this, uh, this Christmas Eve. Amidst the, the fun and family traditions, there is also this dark underbelly of how you and I remember how we have been wronged at some point. In fact, if I were to kind of grab a mic and just walk around this room, and if you were bold enough to share it, we'd probably all have stories of how somebody wronged you uh, at some point and how you can't really forget that. And for some reason, those things come up at the end of the year, this time of Christmas. It always comes up, and we remember these things. Our memory is a funny thing, right? It's taking leaps and bounds. Um, when I was a kid, I remember writing something down when I needed to remember on my hands sometimes, right? Um, and that would help me remember that thing. Nowadays, I just say, hey, Siri, and my, my phone does all the work, right? It even remembers where I was standing, right, if I had that option on, the geography thing. But he, here's where our memory can get into trouble, because one thing love does not do is remember the wrongs it has received. One thing love does not do is recall how you have been wronged. Paul says when the love of Christ is in you, when the love of Christ is in the church, it will willingly set aside resentment. And, and listen, I, I realize I'm scratching uh, kind of on some uncomfortable things here because we have to fight years and generations of social norms here. Like, in fact, if you go all the way back, when you read anthropology, and you read how kind of ancient civilizations uh, worked, you would discover through human history, tribes of people um, would identify so deeply with remembering a wrong done by another group of people, they would create holidays or traditions around that wrong. And they would create another holiday tradition when they enacted revenge on that group of people. This is kind of how deep-seated it is in our consciousness, in a way. It was never meant to be forgotten. And so for generations, they carried reminders of every insult or every injury that was ever dealt to them. Maybe you've met someone like that before, right? Maybe you've met somebody who has no problem recalling just right away how they were wronged, how somebody insulted them. You talk to them for five minutes, and they start to steer the conversation to those who have wronged them. And nothing is ever their fault. They're always the victim of another person. And some of them will go back years and years, and they have this amazing capacity for recollecting. Let me just say it clearly, what Paul says here, what Jesus means for us. Love is not resentful. Love is not resentful. In fact, resentful, bitter people are neutered of their Christian effectiveness. When you have resent in your heart, and if you're a believer, 
you are not going to be very effective uh, as a Christian witness. When we're caught in our resentment, we are held captive. It's like watching a movie and we're stuck on pause and we're stuck on a 10-second loop of the same scene over and over again, and we just keep re-watching that movie. We freeze the frame sometimes and remember that scene. She did that to me. He did that to me. He said that to me. He, he thought to say that to me. Do you, do you have that video in your own mental space this morning? Uh, then I would encourage you this Christmas to erase it. Record over it. Choose not to play it. For love keeps no record of wrongs. Think of how the Lord Jesus has treated us. Paul writes to the church in Rome, Romans 4, 7 through 8. Blessed are they whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whom the Lord will not count his sin. If you are a Christian this morning, if you have received salvation, if you put your faith in Christ, that means that Romans 4, 7 through 8 describes your your standing in front of the Lord. That God does not remember your sins. He doesn't remember the things that you've done against him. This amazing news applies to us. The Lord will never count it against us. And there are times in our, even our own warped thinking, we look back at our own video and replay it. Oh God, I remember how I did this years ago. And we look through the garbage of our own sin and the Lord looks at us and says, I don't, even know, I don't even know what you're talking about. Why? Because it was never counted against us. Because the Lord himself is not resentful. Because he loves us with an everlasting love. Look, this Christmas, there is a lot of hardship and brokenness in the world around us. Maybe it's even in your own family. But we need to remember that when it comes to our sin, you and I have been the recipients of grace. And so what is preventing you from letting go of resentment and selfishness this Christmas? Love came down this Christmas, and so let's follow his example. Let's thank God for sending his son uh, during this season that he would save us and that he would live the life that we ought to emulate and follow. Hey, listen, I realize this is Christmas Eve, and many of you are maybe even out of town or visiting for the first time, but we're going to continue uh, our study of chapter 13 uh, the next two weeks. And so um, if you're around in the following weeks, love to have you come back as we finish out uh, this chapter. Hey, let's bow our heads. Let's pray together, um, and then we'll, we'll move on with our service. God, we're grateful for this time. We thank you, Lord, that you are so good to us, that you have... Um, You've allowed us, Lord, to benefit uh, from sending your son for us, Lord, to die on our behalf. And God, not only did he die, not only did he pay the price for our sin, but he also lived this life that is, was so fascinating and so worth our time in studying and knowing and seeing how he, uh, he gave the example for love in so many ways. And so God, would we, would we look to Jesus this, this, uh, this weekend? Uh, would we remember um, his work on the cross, but also the life that he lived uh, to love us and give us all, all that we have. We love you and praise in your name. Amen. Amen.